From its first words to its last, the Gospel of Matthew calls people to a radical new frame of mind. In this literary masterpiece, the outsiders are brought in, the rich are exposed as poor, and those who seem most powerful are proven to be weak. But nothing in this book is as shocking as the circumstances surrounding the birth, life, death, and resurrection of a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth and the claims he makes on our lives. It's a narrative so profound, everyone has a response. Good morning. It's great to see you. My name is Matt. I'm one of the pastors here. Privilege, pleasure to have you. So good to have you with us. Uh, sorry, my voice. I got lost my voice there for a second, Ryan. It's not that funny. It's not that funny. I can see you laughing. It's all good. Great to see you. Uh, I feel like I haven't been with you for a while, but we were away in Quebec for a little bit, and then uh, last week preaching at Tri-City. Great time. If you don't know, we planted Tri-City Church in Coquitlam a couple months ago, uh, and it was, it's just so fun to be there. Church, a couple months old, see a whole bunch of Westsiders there. Norm is there today, uh, so I would ask, they're just starting their gathering right now as well, so I would ask that you be in prayer for them. Also, they get a couple weeks of Westside, so hopefully they're enjoying that too. Grab your Bibles and turn to the gospel of Matthew chapter 17. We're going to be in verses 1 to 13 today. It's the Transfiguration. It's a great text. If you don't have a Bible with you, we have some at the back for you. Pull it up on an app, whatever you need to do, but make sure you have that in front of you. Uh, I want to jump right into it. So let me pray and then we'll get moving. Father, thank you. God, thank you that Jesus has paid all of our debt. Thank you, God, that we can trust you for life and salvation. Thank you, God, that you've removed from us in Jesus the curse that leads only to death. And now we can come to you and find life leading to more and more life. Ever-changing, ever-progressing transformation, one degree of glory to another. Thank you, Father, for this miracle. Thank you for this life-giving salvation. I pray, Lord, that as we open your word today, as we sit under your word, that you would speak to us, that you would do exactly that, that you would transform us from one degree of glory to the next. Father, I also pray for those here who, who wouldn't call themselves Christians. They wouldn't identify that way. I pray that you'd speak to them as well. Draw them to yourself. Bring them into your family today. Lord, we love you. We love your word. We're so thankful for it. Help us now as we unpack it. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, in high school, uh, one of the sports that I played was, was rugby, and I loved rugby. I played uh, flank, and so what that meant is that, you know, when there was a scrum, uh, which if you don't know what rugby, if you don't know what a scrum is, then you're, you're SOL, but there was a scrum in rugby, sorry, it's too long to explain, and the flank is on the side of the scrum. My job, my one, one of my jobs was to see the ball, and as the ball moved uh, out of the scrum to the other team, the opposing team, if it, if it went that way, my job was to take the head off the fly half. The first guy who touches the ball, my job is just to take his head off, and I loved it. I loved it so much. I wasn't the biggest guy, uh, but I was aggressive, and so I got a lot of penalties for high hits because I actually went for the head. It's not good. You're not supposed to do that, and you got cleats on, so you're stomping on people on the ground. It's just a, it's a beautiful game. Awesome game. Rugby's complex though, right? You've got malls and rucks and scrums and lineouts. There's lots of components to the game. And so we as a team, we wanted to get better and better. And so what we would do is we would practice. That's not that surprising, right? We would have games and we would have practices. But at practice, for us to excel in this complex game, we would narrow our focus to one or two things. We couldn't do more than that. If you try to spread your attention out wider than that, you're just not going to really get really good at anything. So one or two things. Today's sermon is going to be like rugby practice. 
The transfiguration is multi-layered. I mean, there are so many layers here. There's so much complexity here, but we're going to focus on just one or two primary things that I want to see so we can grow in Christ. If we try to do everything, we're not going to grow in anything. So we're going to focus our attention. If there's one thing, let me unload kind of that one thing to you right from the beginning here. If there's one thing I want us to see, one kind of primary piece of application that I want us to take from today, uh, it's this. The transfiguration of Jesus is like, it is like a massive uh, lit up billboard screaming at all of us that our lowest moments in life don't have to crush us. And the highest highs, the greatest moments in life, they don't have to limit us. So whether you're here and your life is, it seems to be just a state of perpetual lows, or whether your life is kind of seems to be made up of one high after another, the transfiguration of Jesus wants to radically alter the way that you live today. But here's something else I know. I know that most of us don't live in one extreme or the other. Most of us live somewhere in the middle. And not just at one point in the middle, but all over the middle. See, for a lot of us, we live bouncing. Bouncing between the lows and the highs of life. We're doing everything we can to avoid the lows. We're doing everything we can to resist distress and pain uh, and suffering and despair and depression. We're trying to get away from all that stuff. And then we're trying desperately to hang on to the highs. The pleasure, the euphoria, the ease, the comfort, the success. The problem is the lows keep coming and the highs never last. And so what that means is we're forever stuck in this exhausting cycle, bouncing between the lows and the highs. We live like yo-yos on a string, just bouncing up and down. It's exhausting. Some of us come into this room this morning, and we're very much enslaved by that cycle. When your circumstances are heavy, when they're bad, when they're hard, then you're low. You're in despair. When things are good, then you're up. It's a horrible way to live. Let me ask you a question. If somebody came to you today and said, hey, there's an opportunity for you to cut that yo-yo string once and for all. There's a foundation for you to stand on so that you don't have to be limited by your successes and you don't have to be crushed by your failures. You don't have to be enslaved by the constant lows and highs of this life. Would you accept the offer? Westside, that's what's on the table today. In the transfiguration of Jesus, Jesus holds out the scissors for you and for me to cut the yo-yo strings that keep us enslaved by our circumstances in this life. The freedom being held out, today, to, to, uh, held out to us today is exactly that. You don't have to be a slave to the temporary mediocre pleasures that this world offers. That's what's on the table, whether you're a Christian already or not yet. So let's jump in. I'm going to show you how we get there. Jump in with me and have a look at uh, Matthew 17, verse 1. Matthew writes this. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Okay, first thing to notice here is that Matthew connects this, uh, this section of text with the last section of text. So a couple weeks ago, if you were here, Norm walked us through uh, chapter 16. And two of the things we see in chapter 16 are, are really, really clear. We see that number one, Jesus is God. That's who he is. And number two, we see the cost of following him. 
Jesus is God, and this is what it costs to follow him. And Matthew in 17.1 tells us, I'm going to build on that now. I'm going to show you, I'm going to unpack that reality more, build on top of that foundation. So for that reason, we're going to break the sermon this morning into two primary sections. First, we're going to hang out on the mountain with Jesus. I just love this. Can't wait to do this with you. Hang out on the mountain with Jesus and stare into the significance of his transfiguration. Now we're only going to, again, it's rugby practice. We're only going to be able to see a couple of things, one or two things, but it's so beautiful. And then second, we're going to look at the disciples' response to the transfiguration and see what we can learn about our call in all of this. How can we cut that yo-yo string on our life? Then we'll respond. All right, so Jesus takes the disciple kind of leadership circle, Peter, James, and John, takes them up on a mountain. Now we can't miss that. They go up on a mountain. See, in Scripture, mountains are used to represent the highs in life. Right? Mountains would often be places of revelation. This is where God would meet with his people. This is where God would speak to his people. They're contrasted. The mountains are contrasted with the valleys. Right? Valley moments, valley times, they're times of despair. They're places of destruction. But this today, right now, this is a mountaintop experience. And so we get an amazing, mind-blowing revelation to go along with it. Verse 2 and 3, have a look at that with me. Matthew writes, And he meaning Jesus, was transfigured before them. And his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. This is the moment. This is the moment that that Matthew declares that Peter was right. When Peter declared Jesus as God, Matthew saying, yes, Jesus is God. The power he walked with, the life that he lived, this was no mere man. This was God himself. I don't like saying mere man because it makes me think of Zoolander. You know, merman? It's not merman. This is no mere man. Jesus is no mere man. The theologians will call that the hypostatic union, meaning he's fully God. He's fully man. Both natures are fully there, but neither one of them is diluted by the other. That's what Matthew's telling us. This is Jesus. He is God, the God-man. And the only word he has to really convey to us the glory of this moment, the glory of seeing Jesus in power and in perfect communion with God, the only word he has to describe that is light. So he says his face shone like the sun. His clothes were, were glowing. But in the transfiguration, we don't just see Jesus. We don't just see what's happening with Jesus. We also see Moses and Elijah. And you have to understand that for Peter, James, and John, seeing Moses and Elijah appear talking with Jesus, this was like the ultimate celebrity meet and greet. Right? This, was their, this was their ultimate dream. I mean, Moses and Elijah, these guys shaped their very existence, their heritage, their lives. Moses wasn't just the guy who, you know, led the people of Israel from slavery uh, in Egypt to freedom. It wasn't just that. He was also the guy through whom God gave the entire law, literally shaping the nation of Israel. And Elijah, he wasn't just a miracle-working prophet who, prophet who did a bunch of things. He was the prophet of prophets. As the Old Testament closes in the book of Malachi, we're promised. There's a prophecy that says, Elijah will return before the day of the Lord, before the Messiah comes. For the nation of Israel, Moses and Elijah represented the whole law and all the prophets. You have to understand that in this moment, 
in this moment, at the transfiguration, the reason this moment is powerful enough to affect your life and my life even today to cut that yo-yo string is because all of human history is converging in this one moment and in this one man. All of God's work, all of his plans for human history, past, present, and future, is all coming together in Jesus. Jesus, what we're seeing by the appearance of Moses and Elijah is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. It's why in Matthew 5, verse 17, Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. This is what we're seeing. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. Why does that matter? That matters because if it's true, it means that Jesus is your only hope. He's my only hope. It means that Jesus is the only one who ever, who ever fulfilled the requirements, the just and right and perfect requirements of the law, the requirements that God has held up for humankind and said, if you want to walk with me, here's the law, here are the requirements. Jesus is the only one who ever fulfilled that. None of us could do it. None of us could walk in those requirements, fulfill that law, but Jesus did it for us. It's why he's our only hope. See, sometimes we think about, you know, the law of God and we think maybe those just an arbitrary set of principles. Nothing could be further from the truth. Westside, the, the law of God was in every way connected to the character and nature of God. The reason God held out a law that was impossible for us to keep is because he's saying, look, if you want to walk with me, you're going to need a savior. You're going to need outside help. Here's the law. Look, here's an expression of my holiness for you. The fact that the law broke every single one of us was meant to show us that we need a savior. And here he is, Jesus, speaking with Moses and Elijah in communion with God, face shining, clothes glowing. This is what we're seeing. This is why Jesus stepped into human history to represent us and do what we didn't, be what we couldn't, to uphold the law that we broke, and as I said, that broke us. I just want you to see as we get going here that, you know, Jesus at the transfiguration, one of the things that we see here is we see that how he dealt with God's plans in, in, in the past. We're going to see the present and the future in a minute. But as we look at the past, you need to understand Jesus has dealt with your past as well. Those of us who are carrying guilt and shame with us, those of us who are carrying, you know, uh, despair because of the points at which we've broken the law, you're not trusting the transfiguration. You're not trusting what we see here, the reality that Jesus is God and that he has fulfilled the law. If you say, I follow Jesus, if you say, I'm a disciple of Jesus, and you carry guilt with you, shame with you, you are not trusting your Savior. Your hope is in something else. So I want us to look into the transformation uh, and see that. Jesus has made a way for us to be redeemed. He's taken our past on himself. He's taken our law breaking on himself and made a way for us to enjoy this same power, this same transformation in the present. And I use that word transformation really specifically because in 17 verse 2, that word transfiguration that we see there, that's the Greek word metamorpho. It's the word from which we get metamorphosis. 
And we have that word actually in a couple other places in the New Testament speaking about what happens to Christians as we come to Jesus. For example, in Romans 12 uh, verse 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul says, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, metamorpho, by the renewal of your mind. Or in 2 Corinthians 3.18, where the apostle writes this, And we with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God, are being transformed, metamorpho, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Some of us have been Christians a very long time, but we're not finding this metamorphosis in our lives. We're not finding the transformation. You you need to understand, transformation is not just the goal of the Christian life. It's not just where we're going. It's also the means of the Christian life. It's the means of walking faithfully with Jesus. Sometimes it seems like we imagine that, you know, what God's really interested in is making converts. We think of God like an annoying salesman who just kind of wants you to sign on the dotted line. Nothing could be further from the truth. Man, yesterday I had the incredible, incredible joy of leading someone to Jesus. We'd spend a few hours walking through uh, this trail by a rushing river. It's my happy place. It's so beautiful. We're talking about God. We're talking about the Spirit. And finally this guy, he's 30 years old, and he cries out, I'm done being my own God. Jesus, save me. And he did. He saved him. But here's the thing, and this is what I told him yesterday, and what we're walking through together now with other brothers here from Westside. What I told him is the same thing I'm telling you now. This is not the end. This is the very beginning. It's one transformation that's going to lead to, hopefully, by God's grace, hundreds of thousands more. I was eight years old uh, when I when I first can kind of point to the moment when I became a Christian or came to Jesus, I remember I was laying in, in, the, in my bunk bed, top bunk, of course, right? I'm the oldest son, so that was my birthright. My little brother could stay on the bottom. That was where he belonged. Uh, so I'm in the top bunk, asserting my dominance. Uh, and, and in that moment, in that moment, I just saw. It was like my eyes were opened. And I just saw that my whole life was wrapped up in Jesus, I didn't have a lot of words to put to that, but I just saw that he loved me and my life was in him and I ran downstairs past my little brother in the lowly bottom bunk and I ran downstairs and my parents were watching TV as they always did. Uh, my mom's here, so I'm just trying to razz her a little bit. But, but, you know, they're watching and I just said, I said, I need to be baptized. And then when I was 20, I had another transformation, even bigger than the first. Like that first, that first transformation, eight, was massive. But then at 20, there was one that felt like I heard the gospel for the very first time. Like I'd never heard it before. I saw how stupid I had been. I saw all these things. My life was changed. Like it had never been changed in the past. Two transformations, same trajectory, going to the same place. Between those two, more transformations that we can count. After that, hopefully more than we'll be able to count. The point is this. If you're not transforming, you're not growing. If you're not transforming in Jesus, you are not walking as a disciple of Jesus. You can't be. Some of us have been sitting in this room or sitting in a church service for year after year after year after year, every Sunday in and out, but has your life changed? Are you hearing from the Spirit? Are you growing in holiness? 
Are you walking more and more each day in what Jesus lived and died and rose to give you? As we watch Jesus, we look at Jesus being transfigured on the mountaintop. Man, we're seeing a part of what it means for us to live as Christians in the present. It means transformation. But let's take it a layer deeper. Let's take it one more level deep uh, before I zoom back out and remind you uh, where we are. Because Jesus didn't just deal with our past. He didn't just deal with our present. He also dealt with our future. And we can see that at the transfiguration as well. In one of his letters to the church in Corinth, Paul talks about the resurrection of the body that every, everyone in Christ uh, will experience. He says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor. It's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. It's sown in a natural body. It's raised a spiritual body. See, what's coming for those in Christ is not just eternal life floating somewhere in a disembodied bliss. We get new life, new bodies, the resurrection of the dead, glorified bodies. What we're seeing here when we look at Jesus, we're seeing his face shining, his clothes glowing. We get more than glow-in-the-dark clothes when Jesus comes back, although glow-in-the-dark clothes would be awesome, right? But we get more than that. We get perfect communion with God. We get bodies without limitation, upgraded bodies able to handle this new experience, this new communion with our Father. No more unholy impulse. No more remains of the curse. None of it. No more sin in it. No more pain through it. No more sickness. Nothing. It's where everyone who bows before Jesus is heading. All right, so if we're going to look at one thing on the mountaintop, rugby practice, that's it. That's the mountaintop. That's the transfiguration. We're seeing that in it, Jesus has taken care of, in it, we're shown that Jesus through his life, death, and resurrection has taken care of our whole past and present and future. Westside, this is the glory of God. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ wrapped up in a single moment, converging on one man. It's the glory of God in visible form. We just need to enjoy this. And I want you to know, this isn't for somebody else. It's for you. It's for you. And if you're sitting here thinking, okay, this is so basic. We're just talking about the gospel, the, you know, the most elementary kind of things. that they're... You're wrong. You're dead wrong. The gospel is the beginning, middle, and end of the Christian life. We don't graduate from this. None of us, no one in this room is perfectly living this out yet. We need this. We cannot assume this. It's for you. You have fallen short of God's law, but Jesus fulfilled it for you. You don't have any way to save your own soul, but Jesus can be your mediator. You have no reason for hope in or beyond this temporary life, but Jesus came to give you eternal life in his resurrection power. But back to our yo-yo string. How can the gospel, as seen in the transfiguration, destroy, free us from this, this enslaving cycle of being destroyed by the lows in our life uh, and limited by the highs. How can it do that? Well, to see that, we need to understand Peter's response to this mountaintop moment. So, so remember where we are. So Jesus is being transfigured on the mountain. 
He's, he's shining. He's glowing. Moses and Elijah have just popped up out of nowhere. Notice, uh, it says when they show up, they showed up talking with Jesus. There's no greetings. There's no, hey, Jesus, how you, I'm Moses. This is Elijah. You know, let's have a conversation. They, they just show up. They're just talking. It's like they were in the middle of a conversation. And they just appear. So the disciples, Peter, James, and John, they're standing back and they're just observing this. I mean, can you imagine this moment? Here's how Peter responds. As Jesus is talking to Moses and Elijah, we read this in verse 4. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we are here. If you wish, I'll make three tents here. One for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Westside, Peter is not so bright. He's not so bright. Listen, promise me right now. We're Mennonites. We're not supposed to make promises, but we're going to make one. Promise me right now that if Jesus ever shows up, transfigures himself before you, and two characters from the Old Testament pop up, and they're having a conversation, don't say anything. (laughs) Don't interrupt them. Right? Peter just shows up and says, hey, Jesus, I'm sorry to interrupt. I'm going to let you guys get back to your conversation. Hey, Moses, Elijah, it's great to see you. While you guys are talking, should I be working on getting some more permanent accommodations ready for you? This is awkward. This is uncomfortable. This is not what you do. Peter is so far out of his lane here, and he doesn't even realize it. So the father responds. Have a look at verse 5. As Peter's speaking, it literally says in verse 5, he, Peter, was still speaking. When behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and the voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. The father should not have had to show up and say that. He should not have had to show up and say, Peter, listen to Jesus. Maybe listen to their conversation. They have something to offer you. Peter's not so bright. This was a divine you-know-what slap for Peter. If, if you don't know what a you-know-what slap is, that's okay. You're more holy than I am. I remember one time, uh, my grandpa had a boat, uh, and he would kind of travel around the different islands on this boat, and, and, and my mom and my brother were sleeping in the bow of the boat, um, and, and I, was, I was excited. I was probably maybe seven or eight years old, something like that, and I was excited about something, and so I yelled out. Remember, they're sleeping, and so I yell out, I don't know what, just something, hey mom, wake up. And I get instantly a rolled up newspaper right to the side of the head. I will never know how he rolled up that newspaper so fast or if he was just waiting for me to do something stupid like this the whole time. I don't know how he did this, but it was effective. It hurt my feelings, but I shut up. This was also effective for the disciples. Have a look at verse 6. When the disciples heard this, meaning the voice from heaven, They fell on their faces and were terrified. Finally, the right reaction to what's right in front of them, the awe of God, the fear of the Lord. Finally, Peter realizes, look, this is not a time to be speaking. This is a time to be on our faces, praying to survive. Verse seven. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, rise, And have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. If I can just step outside of our sermon for a second and give you just one kind of uh, uh, aside sort of application, it, it would be this. Some of us, some of us are longing for a touch from Jesus. 
Some of us are longing to hear him say, rise and have no fear. And some of us are just desperate for it and we're not receiving it. It's not coming. It's not showing up. You need to understand something. As long as we are in fear because of our worship of things other than Jesus, the worship of false gods, the fear of other things, the fear of what can happen to us in this life, the fear of what can be taken from us in this life, the fear of what won't happen for us in this life, the fear that we won't measure up, the fear that we won't make it. As long as our fears are coming from our idolatry, Jesus will not touch you and say, rise and have no fear. This comfort, this comfort is for those who walk in the awe and the fear of the Lord. We need to change our object of worship if we want Jesus to comfort us. So Jesus says, rise and have no fear. They look up. Moses and Elijah are gone. The moment's over. The transfiguration is done. But here's the question that we need to answer. It's a question where we begin to see ourselves more in this. Why did Peter speak up in the first place? What was Peter actually after? See, in verse 4, we're told that Peter wanted to build three tents. Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Now, don't think camping tents. Think, think kind of a personal place, like a, a, a permanent place to hang out. Peter wanted to take this mountaintop experience, and he wanted to cling to it. He wanted to catch lightning in a bottle. He wanted to create some permanence around what was happening here. So he was asking Jesus, can we set something up? Can we build something here and hang on to this moment? That's what Peter wanted. And Westside, this is what we do, isn't it? We chase the highs of this life and then we try to hang on to them as long as possible. Then one day we come to Jesus. By God's grace, we come to Jesus. I don't want to be God anymore. Jesus saved me and he does. We come to Jesus and we just start doing the same exact thing. So maybe your moment of high was on a beach somewhere. Or maybe it was a literal mountaintop. Maybe it was in a worship night or, or a conference or maybe it was a vision or a dream or a word or something that was spoken over your life. I don't know what your high with God was, what it's been, but here's what I do know. I know that some of us, ever since that moment, all we've been doing is trying to get back to that mountaintop. We're still trying to chase that very same high it's why so many people jump from church to church without ever taking any kind of ownership. It's why we come in and we're not even ashamed to just be consumers of what the church offers. It's why we come in and become expert, you know, critics of preachers and pastors and, and worship leaders and all of that. Because we're just sitting there, we're just consumers, we're just chasing something else. We want the pastor to do for us what was done for us before. And until he does, we're not going to be satisfied. Yes, it's disobedient. Yes, it's idolatry. Yes, it's wrong. But we're not even ashamed of it because the high, chasing the high, has become our ultimate value in this life. And just so you know, like, you know, church leaders, they feel the pressure of that. And so it's why so many of our churches have stopped, you know, standing on the word of God. They've stopped just preaching the word of God. They've stopped just singing the word of God. And they've started to do other things. Why? Because they felt the pressure to turn the church into a factory that manufactures artificial mountaintops for the masses. 
But it's not what the church exists to do. Why not? Because the mountaintops, west side, they're not meant to last. God's design for us in this life is not that we live on the mountaintops and we stay there with him. It's what we see in the text. The transfiguration is over. Peter, James, and John look up. Moses and Elijah are gone. The transfiguration, this mountaintop experience, isn't meant to last, which is what we see as the story continues. Verse 9. And as they were coming down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. That is a dagger to the heart. Jesus led them up the mountain. Now Jesus leads them down the mountain. And on the way down the mountain, not only has he told them, you're not allowed to create any permanence around this. It's going to end quickly. It's already over. Now he says, I don't even want you to talk about it. I mean, they didn't understand what the resurrection of the dead was yet. They didn't know what was going to happen to Jesus. Their, their minds hadn't quite got there. So the disciples are confused. Verse 10. And the disciples asked him, Then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Now we've already dealt with the connection between John the Baptist and Elijah earlier on in the series. So we're not going to unpack that again. But what I want you to notice in, this, in these few verses is the response of Jesus to the disciples' question. See, they want to know, why isn't Elijah sticking around? We were finally getting somewhere. Why did he leave? Jesus sort of answers their question, but then he brings it back to the thing that he wants them to know, the thing that he wants them to be thinking about as they walk down the mountain. What was that? His suffering was still yet to come. See, Jesus, Jesus didn't lead them up the mountain to stay up on the mountain. Jesus led them up on the mountain to strengthen them for the valley they were about to enter. You need to understand, you need to understand that without mountains, there are no valleys. Without valleys, there are no mountains. The highs and the lows of this life, they are his tools, they are his tools in his hand working on you. Some of us have been praying for a long, long time for God to heal us, for God to comfort us, for God to meet us. And the only way we can imagine him doing that is by keeping us up on the mountain. You have to understand the valley, the mountain's transformation, the valley's where he refines you. And as we saw in the transfiguration, Jesus has set one big mountain in front of us. There's a mountaintop yet to come, an eternal mountaintop, one that we will never be led off of, communion with God for all time. That's coming. There is a mountain coming, but until then, it's peaks and valleys all the way up. If you resist either the peaks or the valleys, you're resisting following Jesus and you cannot be his disciple if you're resisting the Spirit's leading of you or keeping of you in the valley, you are not, you are resisting following Jesus. I started our time by saying that Jesus can cut the string that keeps us yo-yoing between despair and ecstasy in this life, and that's why. Because every step 
through the valley, every step over a peak, every one of those is a necessary step to that final mountaintop. There's only one path for you. There's only one road for you, Christian, to that final peak, and you're on it. You're on it. Stop listening to the voice of the enemy that tells you there's another path. There's another way for you. If you would have just made this decision or that decision or done this thing different or that thing different or if this wouldn't happen or that wouldn't happen, stop it. This is your road. God is taking you there. He has heard your prayer and he's answering your prayer. The the peaks need to be enjoyed. The valleys The valleys need to be endured. Patient endurance is our call as we imitate the one who carried his cross. Jesus, I mean, think about Jesus. Jesus came off that mountain, right? Jesus came off that mountain, probably the highest high in his human experience as well. And he was about to descend to the lowest valley he could ever have gone to. The Garden of Gethsemane was in front of him. Sweating blood was in front of him. And as his disciples were trying to force him to stay on that mountain, we are once again seeing what we saw in chapter 16 where Peter was rebuking Jesus for his talk about suffering. Jesus had a cross to carry. His disciples had a cross to carry. And so do we. It's not mountaintop after mountaintop in this life. It's peaks and valleys. So we've seen that Jesus is taking care of our past and present and future. We've seen that the transfiguration points to a brand new, foundation, brand new foundation for us to stand on. And we've seen that Jesus has put one final mountaintop, an eternal mountaintop, out in front of us. That's where we're going. That's why we can cut the yo-yo string. I just want to reiterate this point one more time. Every single step that you need to take in this life has been sovereignly administered to you by a loving heavenly father. If you're in Jesus, if you love God and you're walking with him, you're called according to his purpose, all things in your life will work out for the greatest good you can ever comprehend. Jesus is taking you there. So let me ask a couple questions as I close. Could it be, could it be that you, uh, could it be that some of us are resisting the walk down the mountain today? Could it be that you're resisting whatever God's calling you today? Maybe it's a hard phone call. Maybe it's a hard decision. Maybe it's a massive change in life. Maybe it's something very, very small. I don't know what it is for you, but could it be that you're resisting the leading of God's spirit because in your opinion, he's moving in the wrong direction? You're saying, no, let's stay here. And he's saying, no, come here. You have to understand there is no discipleship without obedience. There's no life in Jesus without following him. Stop resisting. Are you Peter trying to stay up on that mountain? You need to let go. That high wasn't made to last. Stop trying to recreate it. Look for the new ones. They get better and better And here's the other thing. The valleys get deeper and deeper. It's the reality of walking with God. The closer we get to him, the higher we get up on that mountain, the the more we have to come down into those valleys. 
but the more equipped we are for them when we get there. It's what walking with God looks like. So you need to let go. Or maybe you've been hanging out in the valley now for a very long time. Maybe you don't even, maybe you identify yourself with the valley. You need to let go of that too. You are not the valley. You are a child of God if you are in Jesus. You need to let this sink in. You are being conformed to the image of God right where you are, right where God has you. This is the moment. This is the moment that he has chosen for you. It is no mistake that you're in this room today. The steps you're taking, as I've said, are the only ones that can be taken up that mountain. Jesus has heard your prayers. He's heard your prayers for relief and for healing and for health and for hope and for all of it. And he's answering. Trust him. And don't give up. The other, the other day, uh, you know, it was a couple weeks ago or something, maybe last week, I don't really remember, but, but uh, I, I think about death a lot. I, I just actually kind of enjoy that. I, I find it fun and fascinating to think about. I'm not afraid of it. I'm, I'm a Christian, and so I've got great things coming. I'm very excited for that. This life is difficult, but we've got a great eternity coming. So I was thinking, you know, how far into this next century am I going to get? Like, how far are we actually talking about? How, how long do I have? And so I started to do the math, and I thought, okay, you know, even if I, even if I can, kind of get a full life, maybe 55, that's really old, right? 55, that's get, getting up there. 55 or like 80, you know, where does that put me? I mean, that's, that's assuming that I don't get hit by a car, or I don't get cancer, or something else doesn't happen that just takes me out early, which is very likely, far more likely than, you know, long life. But even if I get the long life, where, where's sort of that window for me? When am I going to go home and see Jesus? If Jesus doesn't come back first, it's somewhere between, you know, 2045, 2065, somewhere in there. That's my window if I get a long life. It's almost 2020. That is so soon. Where's your window? Where's your window? It is coming. Even if you get a long life, it's coming. The window is small and it's very, very close to us now. This life is like a flash of light. It's like we open our eyes and they're closed. We have one shot at this to live faithfully with Jesus, to follow him. And when he leads us over the peaks and he leads us through the valleys, man, we have to respond. We have to walk with him because there is something coming that we will, we will be rewarded for all eternity for our obedience now. And if obedience seems impossible, what God's calling you to seems impossible, that's perfect. It is impossible. That's why you pray and you ask God to fill you with his spirit and you eat from his word. You nourish yourself in him. You walk with his spirit and he fills you and he strengthens you and he makes your life fruitful. That's our call. It's time to stop fighting for the mountaintops. It's time to stop resisting the valleys. Some of us need to come to Jesus today for the very first time. You need to say, I'm done being God. Jesus, save me. It's your day. It's your time. For others, Christian, you need to trust God with your life. What it looks like today. I need to trust God with mine. Where expectations have been met and where you've missed them by a long, long, long margin. Trust God. He has you where he wants you. Now walk with him. Let me pray for us. Father, Father, we love you. 
Father, we need your spirit. We need your empowerment. We need the life that only you can bring. So I pray, Father, in this time, in this moment, that your Holy Spirit would go to work on us, would fill us to overflowing, that those who are here saying, Lord, I want to be faithful. I want to follow you wherever you take me. Whatever it means to carry my cross, that's what I want to do. Father, would you right now respond in power by your spirit and strengthen us, fill us to overflowing, give us all the gifts that we need. Use us as light and salt in this world. Father, for everybody else, for those who are just maybe a little bit calloused or hard-hearted or, or not sure what to do with this, Lord, would you make it clear? Would you work through your word as we go from here, as we scatter back into the lives you've given us? Would you work through your word in our lives? And Lord, for those here who just have no idea what's going on today, just bring peace and draw them to yourself, please. Lord, we are your children. We are your image bearers. And we count on you. We pray expectantly for your spirit because we have no hope without it. So fill us, I pray. Strengthen us, I pray. Use us, please. Make us fruitful. Make us faithful in spite of us. And God, fill us with joy. Restore to us the joy of your salvation. Uphold us with a willing spirit, just as the psalmist says, then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Father, Use us to that end. In Jesus' name, amen.